Welcome to your favorite YouTube channel, Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Jim, we got uh, we have a big conversation uh, to, to have one on this episode. Uh, this is an instrumental moment in comics, the Senate subcommittee hearings, uh, very famous uh, William Gaines testimony to Senator Kefauver and others in uh, the, the, the early to mid uh, 40s, April 21st, 1954, to be exact. Uh, the, in retrospect, what everybody remembers from, from the day is that Bill Gaines was on amphetamines for, for uh, you know, just like all the housewives of the 50s who were on speed to keep their weight down. So was he. And uh, describes him, himself as being a little manic on the microphone and things. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, we'll see what that's about in this conversation. Should say too, this record, this uh, testimony was done in the afternoon of April twenty first. The morning's testimony was Dr. Frederick Wortham, so that's what he's following, like a rebuttal of the guy who is saying comics are contributing to juvenile delinquency. We have lived through several versions of this when it comes to mass media uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, when we were kids in like eighty nine ninety. You had the uh, PMRC, uh, who Tipper Gore and, and, and those who were like in charge of uh, censoring music, and they were calling musicians to the carpet uh, to try to censor lyrics and things. This is where you have Two Live Crew, NWA, uh, Dead Kennedys. Like these, these groups are, they, they had to come up with some sort of re regulating body, some sort of censorship. And then, and then a couple of years later, Mortal Kombat comes out on sega cd there's that game night trap with dana plato that talks about like uh, uh rape overtones and things in these child video games uh same deal they had they had some kind of hearings where the feds were basically like if you guys do not police yourselves we're gonna police you and uh when that stuff was happening in our, our lifetimes I was thinking about this comic book stuff because that directly, I always wanted to be a cartoonist and those fifties hearings directly uh, had, had an impact on, you know, my chosen medium. Yeah. We were talking off air and I said, this is third biggest American comic comic book moment uh, behind, of course, the invention of the comic book format and the publication of Superman. Right. You know, in terms of shaping what this is like, you know, you can't really have comics without those first two incidents, but this one really changes the direction. And like, it was still the shadow whenever I start reading, like it was still the shadow cast on comics. Right. Because that's when comics started the, the Biff Bam Pow comics aren't just for kids anymore in the late eighties. Right. You start to see those headlines. I mean, that is in response to this because at this point it was comics are just for kids. That's what this established. And for decades, that was it. Yeah, created that chilling effect. I guess I guess uh, when we get done with the testimony, we're gonna do this like we did our, our court depositions and things. Uh, that was a very popular playlist. And when we were at Baltimore Comic-Con, I got dozens of people coming up to me who were like, when are you gonna do more court stuff? And uh, I was just like, there's a finite number of court stuff. You know, we'll do anything that we could get, get our hands on in terms of uh, depositions and testimony. But uh, this this seems very I was I was going through I was loading I'm loading up my, my iPad with with stuff to take uh, on a big plane trip. And I was just scrolling through this this book. It came across the, the full Gaines testimony. It was like, oh, that was perfect for uh, this. But uh, we'll go through the testimony. Jimmy will play Bill Gaines and I'll play everybody else, man. I'll play the, 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 the old powdered wig dudes who are up on the dais looking down upon Bill Gaines with his little foam core boards with crime suspense story covers behind his head and stuff. And, uh, and we'll, we'll go through it. Then we'll do, uh, have a little conversation at the end and talk yes. about the ramifications and things uh, that happened directly after and uh, affected the industry for probably 25, 30 years. Yeah. And the last note I have on this testimony is it was televised, which makes me think of like Nixon, uh, JFK debate, you know, where like one dude was not ready to be on TV. Bill Gaines was not ready to be on TV. Yeah. You know, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, let me see it all. You know, I want to see all the testimony and they only show the same clips. Yeah. It's like, that's the only part that's still available. I guess videotape didn't exist. Who knows how they, it's true. It's hard to tell what state the, the video record of this is. Maybe it doesn't exist in its entirety anymore. Right. So, uh, Jimmy, if you're, if you're good, I'm good. Once again, I'm, I'm playing all of the bureaucrats. Uh, which which are innumerable. Probably the most famous one will be uh, Senator Kefauver of uh, Tennessee, I believe. 
and Jimmy will be will be Gaines. Ready when you are. Mr. Beezer, William Gaines, the chairman. Will you come forward, Mr. Gaines? Will you be sworn? Do you solemnly swear to the testimony you will give to this sub subcommittee of the committee on the judiciary of the United States Senate will be the truth? Uh, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. All right, this is the testimony of William M. Gaines, publisher, Entertaining Comics Group, New York, New York, the chairman. You may proceed in your own manner. Gentlemen, I would like to make a short statement. I am here as an individual publisher. Will you give your name and address for the record? My name is William Gaines. My business address is 225 Lafayette Street, New York City. I am publisher of the Entertaining Comics Group. I am a graduate of the School of Education of New York University. I have the qualifications to teach in secondary schools and high schools. What then am I doing before this committee? I'm a comic book publisher. My group is known as EC, Entertaining Comics. I am here as a voluntary witness. I asked for and was given this chance to be heard. Two decades ago, my late father was instrumental in starting the comic magazine industry. He edited the first few issues of the first modern comic magazine, Famous Funnies. My father was proud of the industry he helped found. He was bringing enjoyment to millions of people. The heritage he left is the vast comic book industry, which employs thousands of writers, artists, engravers, and printers. It has weaned hundreds of thousands of children from pictures to the printed word. It has stirred their imaginations, given them an outlet for their problems and frustrations, but most important, given them millions of hours of entertainment. My father before me was proud of the comics he published. My father saw in the comic book a vast field of visual education. He was a pioneer. Sometimes he was ahead of his time. He published picture stories from science, picture stories from world history, and picture stories from American history. He published picture stories from the Bible. I would like to offer these in evidence. They will be received for the subcommittee's uh, permanent files, but that be exhibit number 11. And then uh, they show the document. Since 1942, we have sold more than 5 million copies of picture stories from the Bible in the United States. It is widely used by churches and schools to make religion more real and vivid. Picture stories from the Bible is published throughout the world in dozens of translations, but is nothing more nor nothing less than a comic magazine. I publish comic magazines in addition to picture stories from the Bible. For example, I publish horror comics. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I am responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. This is a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. My father was proud of the comics he published and I am proud of the comics I publish. We use the best writers, the finest artists. We spare nothing to make each, we spare nothing to make each magazine, each story, each page, each work of art. As evidence of this, I might point out that we have the highest sales in individual distribution. I don't mean highest sales in comparison to comics of another type. I mean highest sales in comparison to other horror comics. The comic magazine is one of the few remaining pleasures that a person may buy for a dime today. Pleasure is what we sell, entertainment, reading, enjoyment. Entertaining reading has never harmed anyone. Men of goodwill, free men, should be grateful for one sentence in the statement made by federal judge John M. Woolsey when he lifted the ban on Ulysses. Judge Woolsey said, it is only with the normal person that the law is concerned. May I repeat, he said, it is only with the normal person that the law is concerned. Our American children are for the most part normal children. They are bright children. But those who want to prohibit comic magazines seem to see dirty, sneaky, perverted monsters who use the comics as a blueprint for action. Perverted little monsters are few and far between. They don't read comics. The chances are most of them are in schools for retarded children. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to select what to read or do? We think our children are so evil, simple-minded that it takes a story of murder to set them to murder, a story of robbery to set them to robbery. Jimmy Walker once remarked that he never knew a girl to be ruined by a book. Nobody has ever been ruined by a comic. As has already been pointed out by previous testimony, a little healthy normal child has never been made worse for reading comic magazines. The basic personality of a child is established before he reaches the age of comic book reading. I don't believe anything that has ever been written can make a child over-aggressive or delinquent. The roots of such characteristics are much deeper. The truth is that delinquency is the product of real environment in which the child lives and not the fiction he reads. There are many problems that reach our children today. They are tied up with insecurity. No pills can cure them. No law will legislate them out of being. The problems are economic and social and they are complex. 
Our people need understanding. They need to have affection, decent homes, decent food. Do the comics encourage delinquency? Dr. David Abrahamson has written, comic books do not lead into crime, although they have been widely blamed for it. I find comic books many times helpful for children and that through them, they can get rid of many of their aggressions and harmful fantasies. I can never remember having seen one boy or girl who has committed a crime or who became neurotic or psychotic because he or she read comic books. The chairman, Senator Kefauver, Senator Kefauver, is that Dr. David Abrahamson? That is right, sir. I can give you the source on that if you like. I will give it to you later. I would like to discuss, if you bear with me a moment more, something which Dr. Wortham provoked me into. Dr. Wortham, I am happy to say I've just caught in a half-truth, and I'm very indignant about it. He said there is a magazine now on the stands preaching racial intolerance. The magazine he is referring to is my magazine. What he said, as much as he said, was true. There do appear in this magazine such materials as Spick, Dirty Mexican, but Dr. Wortham did not tell you what the plot of the story was. This is one of a series of stories designed to show the evils of race, prejudice, and mob violence, in this case against Mexican Catholics. Previous stories in this same magazine have dealt with anti-Semitism and anti-Negro feelings, evils of dope addiction, and development of juvenile delinquents. This is one of the most brilliantly written stories that I have ever had the pleasure to publish. I was very proud of it, and to find it being used in such a nefarious way made me quite angry. I am sure Dr. Wortham can read, and he must have read the story to have counted what he said he counted. I would, have, I would like to read one more thing to you. Senator Hennings asked Dr. Peck a question. I will be perfectly frank with you. I have forgotten what he asked him, but this is the answer because I made a notation as he went along. No one has to read a comic book to read horror stories. Anyone, any child, any adult can find much more extreme descriptions of violence in the daily newspaper. You can find plenty of examples in today's newspaper. In today's edition of the Daily News, which more people will have access to than they will to any comic magazine, there are headline stories like this. Quote, finds he has killed wife with gun. Man in Texas woke up to find he had killed his wife with gun. She had bullet in head and he had a revolver in his hand. End quote. The next one. Cop pleads in cocktail poisoning. 20-year-old youth helps poison the mother and father of a friend. Court orders young hanging. Man who killed his wife will be hung in June for his almost perfect murder. Let us look at today's edition of the Herald Tribune. On the front page, a criminal describes how another criminal told him about a murder he had done. In the same paper, the story of a man whose ex-wife beat him on the head with a claw hammer and slashed him with a butcher knife. In the same paper, story of a lawyer who killed himself. In another, a story of that man who shot his wife while having a nightmare. Another, a story of a gang who collected an arsenal of guns and knives. These are very many stories of violence and crime in the Herald Tribune today. I am not saying it is wrong, but when you attack comics, when you talk about banning them as they do in some cities, you are only a step away from banning crimes in the newspapers. Here is something interesting which I think most of us don't know. Crime news is being made in some places. The United Nations UNESCO report which I believe is the only place it is printed, shows that crime news is not permitted to appear in newspapers in Russia or communist China or other communist-held territories. We print our crime news. We don't think that the crime news or any news should be banned because it is bad for children. Once you start to censor, you must censor everything. You must censor comic books, radio, television, and newspapers. Then you must censor what people may say. Then you will have turned this country into Spain or Russia. Mr. Gaines, let me ask you one thing with reference to Dr. Wortham's testimony. You used the pages of your comic book uh, to send across a message. Uh, in this case, it was against racial prejudice. Is that it? That is right. You think, therefore, you can get across a message to the kids through the medium of your magazine that would lessen racial prejudice. Is that it? By specific effort and spelling it out very carefully so that the point won't be missed by any of the readers, and I regret to admit that it still is missed by some readers as well as Dr. Wortham, we have, I think, achieved some degree of success in combating anti-Semitism, anti-Negro feeling, and so forth. The videos are brought to you by the books that we make, and 2023 was and is a big year. 2024 is going to be just the same. The Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is out there. About 75% of this print run has uh, been accounted for, so you guys have about 25% left of our, our stock to go. Scoop up that book if you see it. It's going to make an excellent gift. 
the X-Men Grand Design Trilogy comes out uh, November 14th. It collects all of my X-Men Grand Design works inside of one nice, handy, uh, soft cover. Scoop that up. There are three volumes of Red Room that are uh, completed. Two of them are out on the stands right now, the Antisocial Network and Trigger Warnings. But coming to you in early 2024 is Red Room Crypto Killers with dozens of pages of extra features and commentary in the back. Street Angel Princess of Poverty is coming to you at the end of November. Uh, it is a companion piece to Street Angel Deadliest Girl Alive. Uh, you get both of these books. You have all of Jimmy's uh, Street Angel comics to date. He's been self-publishing and here you have True Crime Funnies, the black and white zine, 1986 zine. Go to Jimmy's website. Uh, he might be sold out right at the moment, but uh, you never know. He, he might have fresh stock depending on when you're watching this video. And uh, Hulk Grand Design is Jimmy's contribution to the Grand Design mythology that we have created for Marvel Comics. Now that we're done paying the bills, let's get back to the video. You know, why do you say you cannot at the same time and in the same manner use the pages of your magazine to get a message which would affect children adversely? That is, to have an effect upon their doing deeds of violence or sadism, uh, whatever is depicted. Because no message is being given to them. In other words, when we write a story with a message, it is deliberately written in such a way that the message, as I say, is spelled out carefully in the captions. The preaching, if you want to call it, is spelled out carefully in the captions, plus the fact that our readers by this time know that in each issue of Shock Suspense Stories, the second of the stories will be this type of story. Mr. Beezer says, uh, a message can be gotten across without spelling out in that detail. For uh, example, take this case that was presented this this morning of the child who was in a foster home who became a werewolf and foster parents. That was one of our stories. A child who killed her mother. Do you think that would have uh, any effect at all on a child who is in a foster placement, who is with foster parents, who has fears? Uh, do you not think that child uh, read, in reading the story would have some of the normal fears which a child has, some of the normal desires tightened, increased? I honestly can say, I don't think so. No message has been spelled out there. We were not trying to prove anything with that story. None of the captions said anything like, if you are unhappy with your stepmother, shoot her. No, but here you have a child who is in a foster home, uh, who has been treated very well, who has fears and doubts about the foster parent. Uh, this child would normally identify herself in this case with, with a child in a similar situation. And there a child in a similar situation turns out to have foster parents who become werewolves. Do you not think that this would increase a child's anxiety? Most foster children, I am sure, are not in homes such as were described in those stories. Those were pretty miserable homes. You mean the houses that had vampires in them? Those were not nice homes? Yes. Do you know any place where there is any such thing? As vampires? Yes. No, sir. This is fantasy. The point I am trying to make is that I am sure no foster children are kept locked up in their room for months on end except in those rare cases that you hear about where there is something wrong with the parents, such as the foster child in one of these stories was. And on the other hand, I'm sure that no foster child finds himself with a drunken father and a mother who is having an affair with someone else. Yet you do, do hear of the fact that an awful lot of delinquency comes from homes that are broken. You hear of drunkenness in the same homes. Uh, do you think these children who read those comics identify themselves with the poor home situation with maybe the drunken father or mother who is going out and identify themselves and see themselves portrayed there. It has been my experience in writing these stories for the last six or seven years that whenever we have tested them out on kids or teenagers or adults, no one ever associates himself with someone who is going to be put upon. They always associate themselves with the one who is doing the putting upon. You, you do test them out on children, do you? Yes. Is that one of your stories, the picture of the two in the electric chair, the little girl down in the corner? This is uh, from a story called The Orphan from Shock Suspense Stories 14. Yes. As we understood from what we heard of that story, the little girl is not being put upon there, is she? She is triumphant, apparently, that insofar as we heard uh, the relation of the story this morning. If I may explain, the reader does not know that until the last panel, which is one of the things we try to do in our stories, is have an O. Henry ending for each story. I understand you used the phrase put upon, and that was uh, no reader identification with one was put upon 
but the converse. That is right, sir. Now, in that one, what would your judgment or conclusion as to the identification of the reader with that little girl who has, to use the phrase, framed her mother and shot her father? In that story, if you read it from the beginning, because you can't pull things out of context. That is right. You cannot do that. You will see that a child leads a miserable life in the six or seven pages. It is only on the last page she emerges triumphant. As a result of murder and perjury, she emerges as triumphant. That is right. Is that the O. Henry finish? Yes. In other words, everybody reading that would think this girl would go to jail. So the O. Henry finish changes that, uh, makes her a wonderful looking girl. No one knows she did it until the last panel. Do you think, do you think it does them a lot of good to read these things? I don't think it does them a bit of good, but I don't think it does them a bit of harm either. What would be your procedure to test the story out on a child or children? I give them a story to read and I ask them if they enjoyed it and if they guessed the ending. If they said they enjoyed it and didn't guess the ending, I figure it is a good story, entertaining. What children do you use to make these tests with? Friends and relatives. Do you have any children of your own, Mr. Gaines? No, sir. Do you use any of the children of your own family, any nieces, nephews? My family has no children, but if they had, I would use them. Do you test them out on children of your friends, do you? Yes. Mr. Gaines, in your using tests, I don't think you are using it in the same way as we are here. You are not trying to test the effect on the child. You are trying to test the readability and whether it will sell. Certainly. That is a different kind of test than the possible effect on the child. Then you have, no, you have not conducted any tests as to the effects of these upon children. No, sir. Were you here this morning when Dr. Pe Peck testified? I was. Do you listen to his to testimony as to the possible effect of these comics upon an emotionally maladjusted child? I heard it. Do you disagree with it? I disagree with it. Frankly, I could have brought many, many quotes from psychiatrists and child welfare experts and so forth pleading the cause of comic magazine. I did not do so because I figured this would all be covered thoroughly before I got here, and it would just end up in a big melee of pitting experts against experts. Let me get the limits as far as what you put into your magazine. Uh, is the sole test of what you would put into your magazine, whether it sells? Uh, is there any limit you can think of that you would not put in a magazine uh, you thought a child should not see or read about? No, I wouldn't say that there is any limit for the reason you outlined. My only limits are bounds of good taste, what I consider good taste. This is where we're getting dicey, Jimmy. Uh, then you think a child cannot in any way, shape, or manner be hurt by anything that a child reads or sees. I don't believe so. There would be no limit, actually, to what you put in your magazines? Only within the bounds of good taste. Your own good taste and sellability. Yes. Senator Kefauver is jumping in here. Boom, he's got the clicker. Here is your May 22nd issue. See covers above. And what the covers are, it's a Crime Suspense Stories 23, where a dude is choking a chick out in a uh, canoe. And Crime Suspense Stories 22, which is the infamous severed head axe with the blood and guts. Maybe you could uh, pop these up on the screen, Jimmy, and let the people uh, give freshen up their, their uh, point of view. Uh, here is your May 22 magazine. Uh, this seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that is in good taste? Yes, sir. I do for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it and moving the body over a little further so the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. You have blood coming out of her mouth. A little. Here is blood on the axe. I think most adults are shocked by that. And then the chairman says, Here, here's another I want to show. Then back to Senator Kefauver. Uh, this is the July one. It seems to be a man choking, a man with a woman in a boat, and he is choking her to death with a crowbar. Is that in good taste? I think so. How could it be worse? Uh, Senator Hennings. Mr. Chairman, if counsel will bear with me, I don't think it is really the function of our committee to argue with this gentleman. I believe that he has given us uh, about the sum and substance of his philosophy, but I would like to ask one question, sir. The chairman says you may proceed. Senator Henning says you have indicated by what I hope you will forgive me if I suggest seems to be a bit of self-righteousness uh, that your motivation was bringing enjoyment 
uh, is that the word you used? Yes, sir. To the reader of these publications, you do not mean to disassociate uh, the profit motive entirely, do you? Certainly not. Without asking you to delineate as between the two, we might say there's a combination of both, is there not? No question about it. Is there anything else you would like to say with us uh, it, with respect to your business and the matters that we are inquiring to hear? I don't believe so. Senator Kefauver pops in. I would like to ask one or two questions. The chairman says you may proceed, Senator. And then Kefauver says, Mr. Gaines, I have heard that your father really did not have horror and crime comics. When he had the business, he printed things that were really funny and stories from the Bible. Uh, but you are the one that started out this crime and horror business. I did not start crime. I started horror. Who started crime? I really don't know. Anyway, you are the one who, after you took over your father's business in 1947, you started this sort of thing here. This is the May edition of Horror. I started what we call our New Trend magazines in 1950. How many of these things do you sell a month, Mr. Gaines? It varies. We have an advertising guarantee of 1.5 million a month for our entire group. This is for all entertaining comics, of which Shock is one of them. How do you distribute these, Mr. Gaines? I have a national distributor. These are roughly 10 individual national distributors, which handle roughly half of the magazines. The other half is handled by American News. The one of the 10 that I have is Leader News Company. This is a distributor. Uh, then do they sell to wholesalers? They in turn sell to 700 odd wholesalers around the country. The wholesalers then pass it out uh, to the retailers, the drugstores and newsstands. Is that right? That is right. They are sold on a consignment basis, question? They are all returnable. So your magazines, along with what others the wholesaler may be handling, are taken in a package to the retailer and left, left there, and he is supposed to put them on the stand and sell them. Yes. And if he does not sell them or uh, does not display them, then he is liable to get another retailer? No, we cover every retailer as far as I know. You don't like things to be put back and resold. Uh, you would like them to be sold. I would prefer it. Comics are so crowded today, I think there are some 500 titles that is that it is impossible for any retailer to give all 500 different places. I notice in this edition of May 14th, the one in, in which you have the greasy Mexican, the first page has apparently uh, two shootings going on in this at the same time here. Then on the next page is an advertisement for young people to send a dollar and get the panic for the next eight issues. Is that not right? That is right. This says the editors of Panic, 222 uh, Lafayette Street. Is that you? That is right. Then the attraction here is, I dreamed, quote, I dreamed when I went to a fraternity smoker in my Panic magazine, unquote. You have dice on the floor and cigarettes, somebody getting beer out, somebody laying on his back, taking in a drink. Do you think that is all right? This is an advertisement for one of my Lampoon magazines. This is a Lampoon of the Maiden Form Brazier ad. I dreamed I went to send, I dreamed I went to so-and-so in my Maiden Form Brazier, which has appeared in the last six years in national family magazines showing girls leaping through the air in brassieres and panties. We simply Lampoon by saying, I dreamed I went to a fraternity smoker in my Panic magazine. I mean, do you like to portray a fraternity smoker like that? This is a Lampoon magazine. We make fun of things. You think that is in good taste? Yes, sir. I've looked through these stories. Every one of them seems to end with murder, practically. I've looked through uh, this one where you have the greasy Mexican and the Puerto Rican business. Uh, I can't find any moral or better race relations in it, but I think that ought to be filed so that we can study it and see and take into consideration what Mr. Gaines has said. The chairman says, Mr. Gaines, have you no objection uh, to having this made part of the permanent files, have you? No, sir. Then without objection, uh, it will be so ordered, let it be exhibit number 12. The, and then the magazines are referred to as such. Uh, Senator Kefauver, is Mr. Gaines a member of the association that we talked about here this morning, which would be the Association of Comic Magazine Publishers no longer. I was a member for about two or three years, and I resigned about two or three years ago. How did you happen to resign, Mr. Gaines? Principally for financial reasons. It only has $15,000 a year for a whole operation? At that time, my share would have been $2,000.
At that time also, about 10% of the publishers were represented. I was a charter member of the association. I stuck with it for two or three years. The theory was that we were going to get all the publishers into it, and then the burden of financial... Did you have any argument about censorship uh, about this gentleman, Mr. Schultz, who has here, uh, not liking the kind of things you publish? No, sir. Mr. Schultz and I frequently had disagreements, which we would iron out, and I would make the changes he required until I decided to resign. Did you have any part, Mr. Gaines, in preparing that code? No. The code was prepared by, I believe, the first board of directors of the association. I was on the board of directors later on, but not at first. Did you subscribe to the code? Yes, sir. Did you think that publishing a magazine like this, for example, would still be within the code? No, sir. You admit none of this would have come within that code. Certain portions of the code I have retained. Certain portions of the code I have not retained. I don't agree with the code in all points. The code that you have here, uh, none of your stories would come in that code. You could not print any of these if you compiled with the full code we read this morning. I would have to study the story and study the code to answer that. How much is your monthly income from all your corporations with this thing, Mr. Gaines? You mean by that my salary? No. How much do you take in a month from your publications? I wouldn't know monthly. We figure it annually. Let's say gross. I don't know. What is your best estimate annually? I would say about $80,000 a month gross. How many books did you say you printed a month? A million and a half guaranteed sell. We print about two, two and a half million. How much net do you make a month out of it, uh, that is, the corporations? Last year, it came out to about $4,000 a month. Do you have several corporations, Mr. Gaines? Yes, sir. How many corporations do you have? I have five. Why do you have five corporations? Well, I don't really know. I inherited stock in five corporations, which were formed by my father before his death. In those days, he started a corporation, I believe, for every magazine. I have not adhered to that. I have just kept the original five and published about two magazines in each corporation. Do you not think the trouble might have been if one magazine got in trouble, that corporation would not adversely affect the others? Oh, hardly. Do you get one magazine banned by the attorney general? Uh, did you not? The attorney general of Massachusetts reneged and claims he has not banned it. I still don't know what the story was. Anyway, he said uh, he was going to prosecute you if you sent that magazine over there anymore. He thereafter, I understand, said he never said he would prosecute. That is the word you got, though, uh, that he was going to prosecute you. Yes. When was that? Just before Christmas. Which magazine was that? That was for Panic Number 1. Just one other question. Uh, there is some association that goes over uh, these things. Do you make any contribution to the membership of any associations? No. Any committee that supervises the industry? No. There is no such committee or organization aside from the Association of Comic Magazine Publishers. You said you had a guarantee sale of a million and a half per month. We guarantee the advertisers that much. So that you have some interest in seeing that the distributor and wholesaler and retailer get your magazines out because uh, you guarantee the advertisers a million and a half sales a month. I have a very definite interest. Unfortunately, I don't have a thing to do with it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Hannock gets up. Could I ask you one or two questions? The chairman uh, says, Mr. Hannock. Mr. Hannock says, what is the organization that you maintain called the Fan Addict Club for 25 cents a member? Simply a comic fan club. You advertise the children should join the club. Yes. What do they do? Do they pay dues? No. What do they send 25 cents in for? They get an arm patch, an antique bronze pin, a 7 by 11 inch certificate, and a pocket card, the cost of which to me is 26 cents without mailing. After you get a list of all these kids and their families and addresses, what do you do with the list? I get out what we call fan addict club bulletins. The last bulletin was principally made up of names and addresses of members who had back issues they wanted to trade with other members. Did anybody buy that list from you and use it? No, sir. I have never sold it. Do you know anything about this sheet uh, called, Are You a Red Dupe? Yes, sir. I wrote it. How has it been distributed? It has not been distributed. It is going to be the inside front cover ad on five of my comic magazines, which are forthcoming. Uh, these include Crime Suspense Stories 25, Shock Suspense Stories 16, Tales from the Crypt 43, Haunt of Fear 26, and Vault of Horror 38. And it is going to be an advertisement? Not an advertisement. It is an editorial. 
Do other magazines have copies of this to be used for the same purpose? No, sir. You haven't made this available to the magazines as yet? No, sir, and I don't intend to. You believe uh, the things that you say in this ad that you wrote? Yes, sir. That anybody who is anxious to destroy comics are communists? I don't believe it says that. The group most anxious to destroy comics are the communists. True, but not anybody, just the group most anxious. Are there any other questions, says the chairman. Mr. Hennick says no. Mr. Beezer gets up. I have some questions. The chairman uh, rings in Mr. Beezer. Mr. Beezer says, uh, just to settle the point which came up before, Mr. Gaines, who is it that uh, gets the idea for this, for one of your stories? You, your editor, the artist, the writer, where does it come from? Principally from my editors and myself. Not from the artists? No. Mr. Beezer says, uh, he just does what he's told. He just follows the story and illustrates it. He is told what to do and how to illustrate it. No, our artists are superior artists. They don't have to be given detailed descriptions. He has to be told uh, what it is. It is lettered in before he draws it. He knows the story pretty much so he knows what he can fit in. Yes. You said that you had a circulation of 5 million Bible storybooks. Yes. How many years is this? 12 years, since 1942. In other words, in a little over three and a half months, you sell more of your crime and horror stories than you sell the Bible stories. Quite a bit more. They seem to go better. This is a 65 cent book. The crime and horror books are 10 cents. There is a difference. No further questions, Chairman. Uh, the Chairman says, thank you very much, Mr. Gaines. Thank you, sir. And Mr. Gaines uh, thanks them. Uh, and uh, after, so, that's that's that part of the conversation of uh the the, the testimony and things uh it answers some questions that i've had uh, about the comics code because if you look at the original covers of the ec books there's this star shape thing and it's it's kind of a censorship body it's it, it's not called comics code authority it's something else but there there are two of those things that show up on uh most of those comic uh, magazine covers and i always wondered like what that was so that clearly was part of the thing that he was associated with before then, which is pre-Comics Code Authority. Uh, but after this comes Comics Code Authority. We have a video where we went through the actual Comics Code Authority in detail, point by point, what was included in that. And almost all of it had to do with uh, Bill Gaines comics with comics like Shock Suspense Stories, Weird Science, Weird Fantasy, uh, Tales from the Crib, Vault of Horror. Couldn't have horror, couldn't have the word weird, shock, crime, like none of those words were allowed to be in, uh, in the titles of, of these comics. Uh, Gaines had to pivot his, his brand very soon after this. Uh, Mad becomes a magazine. And uh, he also creates like the furthest mags, like right behind, like these purple joints right here. These are the, the Pictofiction EC magazines where uh, they are magazine size, eight and a half by 11. They take sort of the best of the old EC stories and come up with like a text treatment uh, that's typeset and things and have like a solid spot illustration. So it's, it's actually not far from the comics because of all the text that they use, but it's just handled in a more magazine-ish kind of way. But uh, if it wasn't for MAD having the success that it did, Gaines would not be not be in business. Yeah, his business completely wrecked by the implementation of the comics code, which doesn't ban him from making comics, but it makes it um, very easy for a retailer to look and see no code and say, I'm not selling these. This right. is how I get in trouble. Totally. Yeah, it's a chilling effect that gets created. So so the body of the books that are behind us here are that the uh, the new trend, as uh, as as he calls it, in uh, the, the deposition of court testimony. But you see these green ones right here. These are the, uh, the New Direction books that come out that have the, the Comics Code Authority. Uh, books like Piracy and, uh, and Impact and uh, the Incredible Science Fiction, Incredible Science Fantasy stories, like those have the Comics Code as well. And he, uh, this is the comic he talks about in Comic Book Confidential where one story completely was not allowed to be in the comic. And that story is published in the big Russ Cockrums. It is, uh, a guy has an eyeball on his back. 
there's nothing more to it. It's just the ghastliness of that was like perverted to, uh, you know, the censorship body. Uh, the story that they put in place was a Joe Orlando story called Judgment Day, where you have these two kind of like robots or seemingly like robots or or astronauts of, of, of some some brand. Uh, they're coexisting, they're doing their thing. The astronaut at the end, the O'Henry, the O'Henry ending to this one is that it's, it's actually a black guy mm-hmm. who gets to be an astronaut or something like that. And in his, in his, the shadow of his face, you see like constellations, you see, you see outer space, you see planets and some shining stars and stuff. And the, the, the comics code like did not want that in there. They said, you got to take those beads of sweat, those stars and stuff out of the shadow. He said, fuck you. I'm not paying dues anymore either. They let it go through and everything, but he was done. That was the last comic books that he put out uh, that, that, you know, had any, any kind of circulation. Now he's put on the, he's put, you know, on TV in front of everybody. He's got, he's got this dais of the powder wig guys looking down at him with their hammers and such. Other comic publishers and creatives are seeing this stuff. And this creates that chilling effect which for years persisted. Uh, we're going to be looking at a, uh, at a, at a comic scene magazine where, where, where uh, 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 Jim Dalton, who was the publisher of, of Marvel in 82, whenever that magazine comes out, he says in the, in the, in the text, these comics are for 11-year-olds. You have to think with the mindset of an 11-year-old. Uh, we've been criticized on this channel looking through those exact comics saying that these are for 8-year-olds and people got very upset about that sorry it's a very clearly 11 yeah right as agreed upon by jim galton the publisher of um or actually i think he's the owner technically of of whatever that was because because stan lee was considered publisher who agreed with that i think dalton's the president president there it is. and uh jim shooter editor-in-chief all in agreement 11 year olds your daredevil comics from 1982 11 year olds uh this is where Batman starts to get rainbow outfits and he's no longer putting guns to the head of the red monk and, and killing werewolves that way. Uh, because as creatives and you worked with, uh, you worked with Marvel. I worked with Marvel on our grand design projects. I had to change, uh, I had to change one thing and I got one sort of warning piece. One thing I had to change, I had to take a, a cigar out of the mouth of Nick Fury. I had two, two Nick Fury cigars I had to remove. <laughs> okay. And the other one was, I don't know what they were thinking I was going to do, but it was um, Professor X on the astral plane. And it's like the clothes don't come on the astral plane. And they were like, don't draw any dicks. I was going to draw dicks. It's a Marvel comic. I know that, you know? (laughs) So they were just like, make sure you don't draw dicks. The chilling effect was in effect with them. You know, they wanted to make sure. But as a creative who's working on this stuff, you ain't getting the biggest page rates, so you don't have time to really be playing around. Taking out a stogie was easy. That that took that took seconds out of my life, may, maybe two minutes of my workday. Uh, involved censoring a, a cigar. Um, you don't want to go into a, a dicey territory that you think might be great. It might be so good for your comic to then have an editor say, you know what, you got to redraw those pages, or we're gonna have to run a reprint, and you're not gonna get paid. You know, we're not going to sign off on this stuff uh, that that could that could affect you. You can become homeless if uh, enough of your work gets rejected at a certain point and the bills are due within three or four weeks. So it makes the creatives. It gives less incentive for them to be very, very creative and and, uh, you know, try things out because you got bills to pay. Yeah, which kind of reminds me full circle back to Gilbert Hernandez saying he does comics for adults. And it doesn't mean that these are R-rated comics. It means that he's doing these for adults with adult sensibility. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you know, I, I sort of think in that mindset as well. It's like, let's just remove that from, from a, a concern. I have so many other concerns, much bigger concerns in my life than to, to worry about, uh, that those kinds of kinds of issues you mentioned that chilling effect we had looked at the stan lee documentary and stan many times has told the story about being at parties socializing and, and trying to uh explain that he's a writer you know when the topic comes up as to what he does and just ducking the question of you know saying that he writes comic books because in his words whenever that part eventually comes out that's the end of the conversation and the person leaves i would say like some of the 
artists that I grew up loving, and I would say like John Buscema's generation, they would lie about their occupations because there was shame associated with comic books. Right. Even to the point of comic strip artists sort of implying like they'd like to give those lousy comic book artists what for, you know, like talking down their nose at that occupation, which is absurd when you think of it as an art form as opposed to anything else. Right. But that's the effect. Like this thing had ripple effects, you know, um, we'll probably have some pics in the in this video of comic book burnings just random people, you know, parents or whatever behind the church, burning the kids comics. Right. And it's because of the way comics were branded based really on this televised hearing where it's like, these are the problem with juvenile delinquency and the corruption of our youth. There, uh, it, it persisted for a long time after that, you know, the, like there, uh, I think that the, the peanut strips that have the famous, like mm -hmm. Charlie Brown at the thing, I don't think those are from the 50s like like that comic gets started in about 50 58 so i don't i don't think those are the the early round but you know that's a very famous kind of strip and uh the comic strip artists were uh they they had the gravy train like if you had a successful comic strip you, for a time charles schultz was the the richest celebrity of movies sports anything he was the richest celebrity for a, a good number of years there in the 60s uh, Walt Kelly is the one famously who, who was like, if I, if I see one of these cartoonists, I'll give them the what for, if I'm in a bar and a comic book guy comes in there, like he's going to get the business. Pogo was huge, you know, and, and, uh, the, those negative conversations, those guys could see that it could have some, uh, lasting implications on, 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 on their gravy trains and, and, and things like this. Now let's talk about some of the creatives involved specifically with EC. There were, uh, the, the, the famous blab feature that Dan Klaus drew that was like the famous alcoholics of, uh, of comics or something like that. Uh, Wally Wood is in there. Graham Ingalls is in there. And uh, in the, in those, in the articles and stuff, it talks about how like those guys, like not Wally Wood as much. He stayed in the game, but Graham Ingalls completely denounced his, his comic book career. It was like, it was almost like Scarlet Letter. Like, like he was involved in like pornography and completely, fucked his head up Wally Wood stayed in the game I think it might be on even the Jack Davis Harvey Kurtzman videotape that they did with Stan Lee where he talked about just a kindly old southern gentleman he is Jack Davis and feeling so embarrassed and humiliated uh, by you know having maybe some of his images show up on the TV whenever they, they were talking about that stuff, it affected him, you know, it hurt his feelings like, like uh, really, really bad. They're having fun. They're, they're, uh, they're sort of having like a rap battle with one another in terms of like the comics that they're turning into EC, like, Oh, I'll, I'll do you. Oh, that's great. Oh, I'll do you. Uh, not thinking about how this can affect them, you know, at, at a, at a, at a greater level. And, uh, you know, these guys, it ruined their, some of these people's healths. It also ruined the the industry for artists and page rates. EC famously paid the highest page rates. So you basically close down that shop and you cut to these guys that maybe in the 60s or 70s go have a cup of coffee at Marvel for sometimes a tenth of the page right. rate. Like, you know, like it destroyed an industry Yeah, from that standpoint in terms of like the blue collar workers who comics notoriously time consumer and labor intensive but you did have tons of writers and artists out there and now this lowers sales and it lowers page rates so you've really taken this thing that a talented artist might be able to do and make a good living at and you've kind of removed that ability to make a good living for virtually everybody in the comic book freelance community a legacy that continues to this day you know that's always been this bottom line thing and just from an in, a competitive in industry you could look at it and say Oh, a bunch of publishers get together and put this other company out of business. Regardless of the content, a bunch of publishers got together and put the guy who's paying the most out of business. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, there was an Overstreet book that was kind of like an encyclopedia of bibliographies of cartoonists. And it would have Johnny Craig in there. And you would see the bulk of his work is EC. But then it would be like Iron Man comics. And then you track those down and they looked so uninspired 
uh, Jack Davis, you would find some of his Marvel comics. I got this cowboy story with like a genie in a bottle, you know. I have horses. one where somebody dresses up like an owl, and we're going to do that comic at some point. <laughs> but uh, it's not his EC work. No. And certainly the Wallywood superhero comics, even the image in that Overstreet book is uh, from Legion of Superheroes or like a Superman or something. And it's very un uninspired material. Now, with every action, there is an equal greater reaction, right? So it's the underground comics generation as little kids who are seeing these things on TV. And now it's the adults. So you had these cool comic books uh, because they're all EC guys. Like I talked about Blab, like I, it's either the first or second issue of Blab. I think it's the first where it's, it's just testimony from cartoonists about their love of EC. I think that's issue one of Blab. Every great underground cartoonist is represented in there and has deep uh, connection to EC comics. So now their favorite comics, uh, they're seeing on TV that they're, that they're getting dissed. And you know those housefrau moms were believing every single thing that came across the tube. So uh, they're getting their ECs taken away. They're getting their ECs ripped up. Uh, the, the comics that are left are just trash, you know, like, like it's just, just pure pablum. Uh, so of course those kids are going to grow up and when they can get their like hectographs and mimeographs and all that, they're going to make their own stuff. They're going to be inspired by those perverted comics of EC comic of EC. And they're going to take it a step further, you know, they're going to, they're going to take it a step further and then uh, just push, push every boundary and every taboo to the point that, you know, they're going to have to run off and go live in France. Some of them. Two of them, the two biggest ones. It is fascinating to think of this hearing having that type of an, of an effect of bringing out the underground, you know, essentially inspiring the underground. Um, and it, it is what happens. It happens everywhere. There's always that opposite pushback. Right. And it, and it happens to the pop culture media that that is like the most popular of the day. Uh, I think it was at the beginning of our conversation here uh, or just mentioned that uh, like we lived through two versions of this with the music and with the video games and stuff like the NWA record without ever getting on MTV has like fuck the police as like the main message. They got they got letters from the FBI asking them kindly to like, please refrain from like including that song on future cuts and stuff like that. Uh, these were like extremely popular for forms of music. And then and then the old Peckerwoods start to like listen. And that's where you get like Joe Lieberman and, and those guys like re reciting the lyrics on TV, uh, you know, from, from these like insane hyperbolic uh, rap rap tunes. Uh, video games start to become more than just like two little squares, you know, chomping like a, a, a little, a tinier square, uh, start to get more visually interesting. The arcade boom with like Mortal Kombat was fucking huge. And then when like old people see that you're, you're punching somebody's head off, there's nobody like we were there, right? Like I never thought that I would uh, punch your head off if, if I caught you right. I never took <laughs> my mom's knives and tied ropes to them so that I could throw them <laughs> and stick it in your chest to pull you closer to me. That's that never occurred to me. Like, like, like I, but I was that age that they were talking about and I was seeing that. And that's the age that the crumbs and those guys were when they're seeing that also. But these guys, like like the undergrounds, they were in. They weren't into like the superhero shit. It was before the second resurgence of superheroes. So superheroes were old fashioned. DC kept their stuff up as just kind of inertia because Superman was so huge and Batman was so huge that they just the diminishing returns are still pretty good, you know. And we get some 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 license opportunities and stuff. But they were looking at shit like like Pogo, and they were looking at stuff like the Carl Barks comics and the John Stanleys and things like this. But there were the guys who were still fucking around with DC and Atlas and, and they were on the cutting edge of like, of like, you know, challenges of the unknown and that era of Kirby and the resurgence of Marvel comics. And those would be your Chakins and like, you know, your Alan Moore's or like uh, your, your Neil Adams, your, your, your Frank Miller's like th those kids, like they're peers of, Crumb and, and Gilbert Shelton, but they liked the pulp more than the pogo, the pogo right. or whatever. So they're the dudes who were making the most noise because they saw these comics really hit a plateau of quality that persisted for years and years and years that uh, that they were sort of push pushing against 
a little bit and then injecting little bits of stuff like like the hairless like like the uh the the cowled batman that has no shirt with a hairy chest and nipples is something that no adams had to fight for right and you know i grew up like miller was my guy so i was reading everything i could his entire maybe career he has is has come out of this 1954 censorship idea like he would rail against that in letters pages of sin city to the point of it was almost like i didn't get it like right. why are you this hardcore about it because it didn't seem like the pressure was on the way he seemed to be responding to it but he wasn't responding to the pressure there was some there's definitely pushback in the 80s about comics becoming too violent but i think it's really legacy of that 54 hearing you know where it's like we cannot let this happen again Right. Like it happened once. Look at right. what happened. We had 30 years of these comics aimed at 11 year olds. Like, no. Right. And I mean, that's that was his message. Every time I'd read an interview with him or see any footage of him, that was probably the number one thing that was coming out of his mouth more than whatever he was promoting. There was always that anti-censorship thing. And I think it comes right back to this. This was like the boogeyman. If you were looking at comics as an art form in America, this was the nightmare scenario. Absolutely. And listen, uh, we talked about it. Go check out our uh, Dennis Kitchen uh, shoot interview at the very beginning, uh, the opening statement. You know, when I was doing my, my kitchen, Dennis Kitchen uh, research, I come across a 1989, 1990 uh, Larry King Live where Dennis Kitchen is in studio with some like Erzatz wannabe Frederick Wortham kind of character. And uh, this is post, this is post Dark Knight Returns. But this is around the time of Michael Keaton, Batman, which comics are now popular again, very popular. Like when, uh, you know, when when Arkham Asylum came out in 89, like that's when the Batman movie came out and, and fucking made Grant Morrison extremely rich. Uh, so comics are huge again. And then you got these fucking douchebags coming out of the woodwork. Now, here's the thing, like uh, Frank Wortham in his day, did did a lot of good outside outside of comics and he even became a promoter of fanzines and stuff uh but the guy the guy on on the dennis kitchen piece is now in prison for over sedating and giving like uh feeding like drug addicted like single mothers and he created a sex harem like and this is not right uh slander libel like this dude is like convicted and is doing jail time and he's the dude on this thing that's like, I read Archie's and uh, wholesome comics, and these comics are trash. <laughs> it, ain't that ain't that funny? That's how it always goes, right? Absolutely, man. So, uh, long-standing ramifications. We 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 sort of don't know how how good we have it to a certain extent. We have all of these venues for publication, but then things come out, and you have you know the idea of like uh, you know deplatforming and and all of that sort of stuff is is certainly. Uh, a, a part of a part of the conversation uh, of these days, but we have every opportunity to publish our own stuff. Uh, if a publisher doesn't want to go on board, uh, we can find our own niches to, uh, you know, discover the audience or bring awareness to an audience for whatever works we we feel like putting together. But I, I do think that it is uh, great to have that reminder, that old cliche. You know, if you don't know history, it's doomed to repeat itself. We say it a lot on this channel where we'll look at things that are 30 years old and be like, we're still talking about this. Right. Like this conversation has not advanced. And reading that opening statement by Gaines, where he talks about like, you start censoring this, you got to censor this, 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 right. this. It feels like that part completely relevant. And to your point on deplatforming, distribution was the platform for a right. comic book publisher. So Gaines could keep publishing without the comics code, but even the distributors wouldn't would just be like, we're not carrying that because where's our money if, if the stores refuse to have it? Right. So like they're deplatformed essentially without that comics code authority stamp, distribution goes away, right. the option to distribute. And it's like, that's where people would, would publishers and creators would lose out. You yeah. know, we talked to Jim Stranko about self-publishing and why didn't Wally Wood work? Why didn't Gil Kane work? And it's because they could not do the distribution stuff because distribution has its own I hate to say corruptions, but it does, you know, like every one of these systems has some of its own abuse. And that was what was deplatforming EC back then. It wasn't the comics code. It was what that comics code meant to the channels of business. The biggest publisher of the day, uh, they 
decided to forego participating in the code. This would be Dell, uh, the publishers of of the Walt Disney comics yeah. and the John Stanley's, the Little Lulu's, uh, the De- the Dennis the Menace comics. The beginning of Pogo. Right. Uh, so they decided not to participate in that. They did their own distribution and uh, on their kind of spinner racks, like the, the Dell spinner racks and the Dell uh, like magazine stand things, there was all this language about the wholesomeness of their brand and stuff. Like like they put a lot of energy into selling their comics as uh, as the wholesome comics that parents had didn't have to worry about whatsoever. And also I think on like the back covers of almost all their comics was completely devoted to, uh, you know, Dell comics or wholesome comics. So that was their reaction. They didn't participate in this thing where it's like, you got to pay dues. They were the biggest publishers. So they could, they could, uh, they could run that risk a little bit. You know, you could always uh, participate next, next month or, or something like that, but they went through major troubles and probably hired some kind of, you know, or did some kind of Madison Avenue type, uh, madman situation to, to do everything they could to create a campaign of wholesomeness for their comics and uh, within those parameters probably the best comics of the day after ec come from come from dell from carl barks yeah john definitely. stanley and a, and a few others because under the guise of those cartoony image images they could still do some stuff you know they could use that iconography and i mean uncle scrooge is a screed on capitalism that is couched with humor and hyperbole because sometimes if you get deep into the idea of capitalism you could you could you 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 have to laugh to keep from crying yeah there's (laughs) definitely a a reading version of that that is critical of uh the american values that the kfavor hearings are supposed to be upholding right uh yeah that's really funny i have one final chilling effect and that is on the readers themselves because this is post-world war ii that we're getting horror comics and crime comics and romance comics huge selling genres that are being sold not just to kids and and i would argue even primarily not to kids kids don't care about a romance story you know what i mean you're selling to maybe ya audience but also adults are reading these things it was very normal at that point you get the chilling effect of like now we have practically legislated that comics are for kids and maybe degenerate bad readers uh, kids to be an adult reading comic post this kind of television hearing now you're an outcast. Now right. you're just like inviting criticism and, and being labeled as stupid or whatever if you're caught reading a comic. So even if there were choices that weren't aimed at 11 year olds, I don't want to be that guy. Right. I, I'm not going to be reading this on the train or, or buying this at the newsstand. And so like you destroy these genres, even if they would have passed the comics code thing, who's reading them now? There's a stigma against just being caught with them, especially as an older reader. I hope you paid attention to the language of, of Gaines at the very, very beginning, where, where uh, as he's extolling the virtues of the medium, what he's saying is that uh, it's the training wheels of literacy, like where it's like we wean them off the pictures. You start them off with pictures and words and then, and then you graduate to prose. Like he essentially says that in the, maybe it's his first uh, paragraph, his, his first piece of the opening. So, so even the publisher, the way he's selling it to uh, these these guys is like, hey man, you know, like we're we're actually we're getting them to read, you know, like. But but that was the only, that was the function. I don't know about you, but going through that stuff, like when Gaines makes his points up front, sounds just fine. But when you see the way that these guys start to spin it on him, my hands were getting sweaty. Yes, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, it sounds like lawyer speak. Totally. Yeah, it's frustrating. Glad to have it on the record. And uh, the one other piece that that should be on the record, you you said it you said it up front, man. So you get all credits to this, man. You talk about the the three big moments in comics uh, history. It is laid out in in the conversation. Like M. C. Gaines, Bill Gaines' father, is a part of all of that. The creation of the comic book with famous funnies. Uh, Bill Gaines, I mean Max Gaines, turns down Siegel and Sch- Schuster, who uh, came to him with the Superman pitch. So. If, if the second piece is Superman. I was under the impression he was an editor for National and actually bought the Superman pitch. He was the guy who, who brought Superman to DC. See, that's a, he, it's very complicated the way National works because uh, like if you watch Comic Confidential, Bill Gaines says what I, I said, but MC Gaines is considered to be like the guy, he bought Wonder Woman. And that's national. So I don't know how that shit works. But for 
he didn't make the money that like Jack Leibowitz or, no, or, or right. those guys made. We'll, we'll, we'll put it that way. But he's involved with Superman. Yes. Uh, it is amazing to think of the gains. Like, I don't know what what which one of those three you would kick out to say is a bigger comics moment in American comic books. That's my three top ones, and they're all gains. Right. Father and son, like, holy shit. And leave it up to the kid to to be a rebel rouser. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> the Nepo <laughs> baby comes a in. A little bit more notorious. <laughs> Good to go, Jimmy? Yes. Hey, favors, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the bell so that we can let you know what new videos are uh, available. We are a daily YouTube channel with more than 1,500 videos in our filmography, and there's a good chance we talked about some of your favorite comics. I encourage you to hit the magnifying glass on the front page of the Kayfabe YouTube channel, search for your favorite titles, and uh, check out those episodes. If, by chance, we did not talk about your favorite comics on the channel yet, you have to let us know. Do, the, do so in the comments. Let us know what those comics are, and we will push those comics a little bit higher on our to-read pile. Jimmy and I are going to be at Big Apple Comic Con uh, come December 16th. It's been years since we've been to the Big Apple, and uh, we look forward to seeing you guys. So, so please come through and bring your comics that we have yet to sign. We have a Patreon, and on the Cartoonist Kayfabe Patreon... Uh, the King Kayfabers get all the videos before anybody else. And uh, w when the internet cooperates, they are hanging out with us in a live stream recording session as we uh, make these episodes, mitigates the Kayfabe effect. They, they, get, they have access to the comics that we talk about before anybody else uh, can scoop them up on the aftermarket. Ultimately, the videos are brought to you by the books that we make. And Before You is a pretty good sample of our bibliography, but we'll get into the nitty gritty. Jimmy, let the people know what you got coming out soon. My next release is Street Angel, Princess of Poverty from Image Comics. This will be out in late November in time for the holiday gift for the uh, action comic, superhero comic lover in your life. And Street Angel, Princess of Poverty collects all the Street Angel comics that are not in Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive, also available from Image. And uh, get both books. It'll complete your collection. I have been self-publishing lately. True Crime Funnies number one is available on jimrug.com along with BW and 1986 zine. And if they are sold out there, you can still read them on patreon.com slash jimrug. And my contribution to the grand design history is the Hulk, which is available in limited quantities because it is sold out at the uh, distribution level. So if you haven't added Hulk grand design to your collection yet, you need to pick that up next time you hit the comic shop. Hip Hop Family Tree Omnibus is my big one for 2023, and uh, it is going fast, man. There's more than uh, probably 75% of this print run is gone, and stores have been re-upping. It was the number one reordered book on, on Comicron, uh, so thank you guys so much. Thanks to stores for uh, for supporting the book, but if you even have any thought that, you're, that you want this or you want to get it as a gift, make sure you scoop it up uh, right away. Uh, it's the best book I've made to date, 500 plus pages. 10-year anniversary of Hip Hop Family Tree, 50th anniversary of the culture. Scoop it up. Uh, not the last holiday release I'm going to have. Uh, coming November 14th is the X-Men Grand Design trade paperback, collecting all of my X-Men Grand Design works. Uh, a couple volumes of that, that is out of print uh, as we speak, so make sure uh, if you are missing out on your uh, X-Men Grand Design, scoop that up. You'll get it all in one. And there is a trilogy of horror comics that I have made under the Red Room umbrella, Anti-Social Network, Trigger Warnings, and coming in January is this trade paperback right here called Crypto Killers, which uh, collects my 2023 season of Red Room comics with a bunch of extras, uh, probably nearly 100 pages of, of extras in, uh, in, 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 in that run, in that book. The books are the most important part of keeping cartoonist kayfabe solvent, and uh, functional. But there are some other ways to support the channel. Jimmy, let the people know. You can subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also pick up Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts, merchandise, mugs, stickers, and more at our spread shop. That link is also under this video. All good ways to support the channel. Give them those final merchandise, Jimmy, and we'll be on our way. Read more comics.